Welcome back. Welcome back. It has been too long, my friends. It is January 6th. My name is Sean Oshadi, and this is the Man in the Myth podcast here on The Athletic. And welcome all to our first show of 2020. As always, we thank you all so much for joining us here today. Hope you guys had a wonderful holiday break. Hope you had a wonderful New Year's break. Uh, no matter how good or how bad your 2019 was, I really hope your 2020 is getting off to a great start, and I hope great things are in store for you in this new year. And I am, of course, here today with my guy. You already know who he is. He's the GOAT. He's the best writer in the damn game, and he is the man in the hat, the myth and the man in the myth podcast, Mr. Chuck Hall. What is up, buddy? How is 2020 feeling for you? Oh, man. Well, happy new year, huh? Belated, but uh, we made it. We made it. <laughs> We made it through another decade too, so uh, this this seemed like a big one, um, and it's weird. I'm still it's going to take a little bit to get used to writing 2020. I realized that already. Uh, the 19 still it just wants to come out, man. <laughs> man, how was the break? It's been that it's been a long time since we got that long of a break. I gotta admit that was kind of nice. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> it is always nice, right? But then you start to feel like you're missing something. Time goes by, like when you have this kind of break, and we don't get these kind of breaks very often where there's just not a lot of MMA to look at. It's just more of a reflection thing and maybe looking forward. We don't have those moments, and uh, it, it feels like a truncated offseason to me or something like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? That like is, you're like, okay, cram it all in. Cram it all in. That is a here. perfect comparison. It's basically yeah. we have this two week offseason every year. Uh, yeah. I love it. And actually, that was a perfect segue that you just set up there for what we're doing today. Because I appreciate you guys, as we said, joining us here today on uh, today's show. Please rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts and everywhere else you can, uh, everywhere else you get your pods. Today, we're ringing in 2020 the right way. Uh, Chuck, me and you, we we did a little preview series, uh, previewing 2020 on The Athletic over the weekend. We did two pieces. It was a two-parter. We're going to dive into that and talk a little bit about that later in the show. So catch up on that if you haven't already. In the meantime, we're going to start off with some bold predictions for what we see coming in 2020. We're going to look ahead, go. look into the crystal ball, and sort of start to look at the landscape as we dive into a, a fight year that is about to hit the ground running, man. I mean, we got Conor McGregor fight week next week. This is coming up fast. Uh, it's a giant schedule. The, it's a loaded schedule, and there's a lot going on. So let's dive in. And sort of make our predictions for what we think we're going to see over these next uh, 12 months. How's that sound to you, Chuck? That sounds great, man. You want to kick us off? You got a good one? Let's do it. Let's do it. We're diving in. Three bold predictions for 2020. I will start off first, man. On the record. Here we go. My first bold prediction. More than half of the UFC's current champions are going to lose their belts this year. Wow. Okay. Did you know that last year, Chuck, tied the record for the most titles changing hands in a UFC calendar year ever? I saw a very smart scribe write that uh, very recently. I think it was you, actually. I think it was one of your pieces. (laughs) (laughs) Seven out of 12. Seven out of the 12. That's crazy, man. There was a time when that would have been impossible. I really feel like there was a time. Do you remember back when they did that summit and they brought all the champions? This is right when they they you know made all the weight classes and they had them all sitting. On, I think it was in Toronto. Oh yeah. But they had all the champions on a stage, including Dominic Cruz, all the way to John Jones, Cain uh, Velasquez. You were looking at that. You were looking at that panel and you're thinking, who's going to? Who could possibly beat these guys? You know what I mean? I feel like those days are just so gone. You know what I mean? Like where you look at the champion and say, hey, he's invulnerable. He'll never lose. I feel like these days you kind of expect the unexpected. It's it's quite stunning, to be honest, because it, it happened quietly. Like I feel like we don't think of last year as this year of big change. 
Seven out of twelve titles ended up in different places than when they started the year, though. And and you're right. It, it's you funny. You, you look back on that. You got John Jones up there with GSP and Anderson yep. Silva, Dominic Cruz, Jose Aldo, Demetrius Johnson, all these people. It's just a murderer's row, man. It was crazy. Long reigning champions. How could these guys ever possibly be beaten? It's such a different world now. It's seven out of twelve champions. The only other time that's happened, other than last year, was 2015. Um, and in fact, if you look at the numbers, it's part of a broader it's part of a broader trend that's been happening for the past three years. The number of titles to have changed hands has increased every single year. Uh, in other words, every year it's become harder and harder for a UFC champion to hold on to their belt. To me, like you said, this is a relatively this feels like a relatively new phenomenon because it wasn't that long ago we had these famous photos of Jones, GSP, Silva, all these guys. Right. And you know what? If you extrapolate those numbers out, you're actually you're right. You're very right. This is very new, this sort of mass turnover. Because if you look at the first half of the decade compared to the second half of the decade, so 2010 to 2014, that five year span. Average per year of only 2.2 titles changing hands per year. So a little over two titles a year. Second half of the decade, so 2015 to 19, 6.2. Wow. That is a massive, massive increase. And sure, let's say you want to point out like, hey, yeah, Sean, there's more weight classes now. Of course, there's more (laughs) weight classes now than 2010. Of course, that's numbers rising. That's absolutely fair. So instead, let's go by the percentages. First half of the decade. 14 out of 42 possible titles changed hands. That's just about 26%. Second half, 31 of 56. That's 55%. Mm. That's still a massive, massive, massive jump. That is. Why do you think that's happening, Chuck? That's a great question. And you know, it's something I hadn't really pondered until you bring this up. But you wonder if it's... Now, it, it could be that back when GSP was ruling the welterweight division and Anderson Silva was doing the same thing and Ronda Rousey came up and she was just, you know, kicking everybody's ass. You wonder if at the time there just wasn't as much parody. You know what I mean? Like the the people weren't as rounded as they are now, to you know, for lack of a better term, where they just kind of are better than average in certain details of the game. Like they're able to... Um, have multiple strengths, and I think that a lot of times, and, and the game planning, right? Like, I think that some people have learned how to exploit weaknesses over time. You know, you get enough footage, I think the coaches are smarter, right? Like, they, they can look at something and say, hey, you see what he's doing here? We can exploit that, and I, I feel like that part of the game has definitely lifted up, um, but I think it's got to be something more like the parody, and if you wanted to get a little more, uh, like, esoteric and think about it, I think that as the sport has grown, you know, and it's gotten, you know, broadcast partners with ESPN, everything else that's gone on. There's a, it's a lot harder, right? Like to, it's a lot harder to protect something than it is to go take it. And uh, I think that that sense, of, I, I hate the word complacency because I don't think that everybody gets complacent, but it's something in that neighborhood where um, you start to feel like the man, maybe you start to believe the hype because there's a lot more hype these days, right? Um, yeah. When you're a champion and things like that. So it could be just some combination of those things. It's an interesting question, but I think ultimately it just comes down to, man, the fighters are just better, and the coaching and the game planning and everything else is just better now. I think I think you're definitely onto something there, and this is something that I've thought about over the past couple of days as we've sort of since we've started working on this uh, the preview series that we did. I think there's part of it true too, too that you know we just simply don't have the flood of generational talents around these past few years, these past five years that we did in the prior era, right? Like guys yeah. like GSP. Anderson, John Jones, Demetrius Johnson, even a BJ Penn. John's really the only one left 
who's still standing, and you can throw Habib and Amanda Nunes into that list now. Sure. Max yeah. Holiday was a Max Holiday. Jesus Holloway. <laughs> I'm still at the holidays. Uh, Max Holloway was about to get there too, but he's off now too. So I think that's partially it that we just don't have this generational talent wave yet uh, for this era. But also, I think we simply underestimate, like you said, how hard it is to become and stay champion right now in this current era because this sport is now old enough to where we have raised an entire generation of athlete who grew up watching it from the ground up, who grew up watching it from age three, who who was in a gym at age five just doing jujitsu and wrestling and everything. And the talent level also just globally has exploded in ways we've never seen before because if you look again at those numbers and the inflection point, 2014 to 2015 that was when everything changed what also happened in 2014 and 2015 two major major events that blew up the sport to completely new audiences right you had ronda rousey True. becoming giant mainstream star and opening up a whole generation for women uh in this game the idea that you can become a female fighter mma fighter and become very rich and successful that was a new thing also you had conor mcgregor going out there and becoming a global phenomenon and really kickstarting this golden era, I feel, of global MMA from countries we had never seen before at the highest level because you yeah. had maybe those athletes out there who weren't getting a look in the small countries. Now they're getting a little bit of a look. Uh, sure. Or the, those athletes out there in the small countries being inspired by seeing this guy, this Irishman, come, become the richest MMA fighter of all the time. <laughs> uh, it's wild, man. Either way, yeah. either way, this is happening and it doesn't feel like it's going to stop anytime soon. I feel like this is going to continue this year. And like I said, half of the UFC champions, if not more, will be losing their belts this year. Another thing to consider is it takes a, a certain kind of person to want the spotlight that you basically inherit by winning a title, right? Like back in the day, before there were even Fox, before the Fox deal, before anything like that, your biggest obligation might, you know, if you if you had to go and do some kind of media, it was usually going to be radio, it was going to be some kind of localized uh, regional television, it was going to be things like that. It was rare that a national, um, you know, any national media was paying attention. It still very much existed in the bubble. It was very manageable for a normal human being to hold a title. I think that there are some people who kind of wilt under that pressure, you know, of having to do... More media takes them out of themselves. They have to uh, become different people, and I think that plays into it, too. We saw Rose Namajunas. I felt like she was so ill-cast to be a champion. She didn't want anything to do with that, you know, um, the kind of spotlight and the and the hoopla that kind of surrounds the game. And I think we've seen other people, and there are some mentalities out there who flourish in that sort of, you know, you put the, the more boom mics that are hovering overhead, the more cameras, the better off they are. But there are a lot of people who just, it's not part of their psychology, and you wonder to what extent it wears on them to even be a champion, and therefore kind of coughs up maybe some of their charms, you know what I mean? Once they get into the uh, into the octagon, just kind of reduces them in general. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right there. And I, I think also just my last point on this, it, it's the glut of talent right now in the sport is really quite remarkable, and I think we're set up for an incredible 2020, because even when we were yeah. doing our preview series, which we'll talk about, as I said later in the show... It, was, it almost felt like we were limiting ourselves. Like it felt like we could have gone another three full rounds on the contender draft because there were just so many options out there making their way, talented up-and-comers making their way to the tops of these divisions. Uh, it feels like a sea change in a lot of divisions, like a bantamweight or something like that is happening. And it's pretty exciting yeah. to see, man. Yeah. 
it, it, it certainly keeps things humming along, right? Because if as long as you have new champions and, uh, you know, refreshing, you know, like re- refreshing, like moments where the, the, the division changes, essentially, it changes so thoroughly that any contender that was kind of already out and couldn't get back to the top, they can. So I think it's good for business, ultimately, when you have a lot of turnover at, in the champion. Yeah. Yeah. So my as one bold prediction for me, what about you? What is your first bold prediction? Sir? Oh, man, mine's not nearly as dramatic because it's a little bit more, you know, specific than this. But uh, that was a very good one. It's very tough to follow something like that up. But I'm going to go ahead and say this anyway, because to me, it's, it still feels like it's a bold prediction. But I think in 2020, we'll see GSP fight again. Oh, good pick. Mm-hmm. I like that. So here's the thing. I feel like we talk about GSP. I don't feel I was at him. Trust me, man. I was up at his retirement, uh, you know, uh, press conference up in Montreal, and you want to believe him, right? Like he's getting out of the game gracefully. He's he's gone, but this is a guy who still to this day represents some kind of professionalism in this sport and some kind of star quality in the sport that's the closest aligned to other sports, right? Like he looks like a professional athlete. He comports like a professional athlete. I think the UFC always keeps the phone line open for him because of this. Like they just love him uh, on levels. You know that uh, that other people can't really get to. I just have this feeling, man. Like he's a, he's an ultimate competitor. One of the reasons he wanted out was that he would obsess over the game. It's now been, it'll be what? It'll be three years in November. So we're at like barely over two years since he uh, since he won the middleweight title against Michael Bisping at UFC 217. There's just something in me, man, that thinks that this year, especially with her uh, with Nurmaga Madoff out there still doing his thing if if it aligns perfectly i feel like that fight will speak to him before he you know maybe right we i think he's 38 years old he still could do this i think he still has you know he's taken enough time where he's been able to repair mentally physically all that i could see it happening man i could see him fighting nirmaga madov if things you know just kind of break the way they need to and i could see nirmaga madov wanting that fight as well so uh my bold prediction is that that happens at some point this year I like it because you know what? There's a path. There's a path there that you can just see. And it, it's very, it, it does, it's not taking a lot of leaps of faith to get there, right? The path would be Conor McGregor fights, uh, either loses to Donald Cerrone or loses to Jorge Masvidal. Uh, and then just ended up, ends up not being able to fight Habib at, at sort of some sort of year end rematch. They need a big fight for Habib in October, November, big show. And there's no better time in the history of the sport, that, or there, I, should, I should say there's no more opportune time in the history of the sport for you to try to get a big fight in the UFC. Because I feel like yeah. right now, if we saw anything in 2019, they're just willing to do stuff that they True. wouldn't do before. They're just willing to throw things at the wall to have the big fight, to have the BMF fight, even if it doesn't really make sense, because they know it'll make them a ton of money. Yeah, GSP is that, right? GSP he Habib, is. even though it would make no sense at all, that's a gigantic <laughs> fight and a lot of levels. Uh, I feel I like think so too. Th- you're onto something there. I think so too, man. And uh, I think that it matters to GSP that pound for pound, you know, the greatest of all time. Let's put it the way: who's the goat? I feel like he's mentioned as the, you know, among the the goats. But we don't definitively say that. But I think if you, you know, him doing what he did with Bisping after you know a few years off, him coming back again into orbit and putting his name out there again and beating a guy like Nurmagomedov or at least uh, challenging himself, if he gets that victory. You know, I'm I'm positive he must think about this. You know what I mean? Like oh, what yeah. that would mean for his uh, his career, his legacy, what all that would mean. He always talks about his legacy. I feel like 
that would be the real cherry on top. You know what I mean? To come back and do something like that. But um, is there I, is there yeah. any fighter whose legacy has actually been improved more by inaction than GSP? Because <laughs> That's no, a I'm, great I'm point. I'm being super serious. Like think yeah. about when GSP retired. Nobody he would get thrown into greatest of all time conversations, but he wasn't the guy. He was more of like a third tier behind a John Jones and an Anderson Silva. Now, yeah, he's only fought once since then. He's sort of let those guys take themselves out of the conversation. <laughs> so true, man. I feel like GSP is sort of the go-to now when people talk about the greatest of all time. Like that's that's my goat. I, yeah, and he, he wasn't a few years ago. It was either Anderson or John. It's just. Uh, that's you're funny, very man. right. I had there. not really thought about that, but I think you're right. Just in my very quickly kind of going over the guys in my head, I'm like, uh, I can't think of anybody who gained more by not doing something than him. You know what I mean? That's crazy. <laughs> what does that say about the sport that that's such a prevalent <laughs> thing? Uh, that's one thing. But uh, yeah. no, I, I, I could see this. And I think I think it feels to me like GSP isn't done, right? Like it feels like he still has one more chapter left. That we just haven't gotten to. He keeps flirting with it too, right? Like people ask him, he's always, he doesn't like to shut the door ultimately. Like, and he left it open even at his press conference. Like, you know, you never really say never, you know, but I just think that he's that kind of competitor. And uh, they're always tempted, right? Because there's a big dollar amount. There's so many different things in play. I could just see him being tempted into that fight and taking it. I don't even think you would need to tempt him. I think you would just need the UFC to sign off. Because yeah. both of those guys want that. Both GSP and Khabib want that fight. I guess now it's just a matter of can can things break perfectly for that to happen. But I think they will. I, I, if you had to put odds on it, I'd be like, well, they seem like if, of all the you know potential matchups beyond what we see that's already booked. But let's you know if things play out the way the odds makers would you know put them. Yeah, I could see that happening, man. Well, that is actually a perfect transition to my number two all right. uh, bold prediction of the year. Uh, my second bold prediction of 2020, sir, is actually a two-parter. So okay. first part, McGregor Masvidal will become mm. the second biggest MMA pay-per-view ever. Okay. Because this is happening. People can wring their head, hands about the Habib rematch all they want and the idea <laughs> that Connor's going to jump a line and Justin Gaethje's getting screwed and all of this. You can parse through the Dana White interviews and get all mad when he says Connor will be the number one contender if he beats Cowboy. All I ask... Just think about this logically. <laughs> Dana White says a lot of stuff. Most of the stuff Dana White says doesn't come true. In fact, true. most of the stuff Dana White says is just stuff that he's thrown out there on the to see if it sticks. Mm -hmm. You keep you Conor McGregor keeps using this phrase "season." Twenty twenty is a season for him. Uh, I really like the way he is approaching this and the way he's using this phrase because in those too close to him say that this is a very serious thing that this is actually where his head's at and it's not just lip service. The idea is of a season. He's going to fight three times in 2020. Cowboy's the first one, obviously, uh, next week. Yeah. Then he has to get some sort of summer fight in. That summer fight will not be Habib Nurmagomedov, no matter what happens. No matter if Habib he beats Tony, it's not happening. He's out for the entire summer, Ramadan. We've gone through this before with him. He's not going to fight till the end of the year. Yeah. Conor McGregor's not going to sit around just for a chance to challenge for the title that he already once had. That is not how this works. Uh, that man doesn't do de-escalation. De as you said, this is a per the phrase that you coined at the beginning of all of this cowboy thing. Connor doesn't do de-escalation. De this is the first time we've really ever seen him do it, and it is essentially mandatory. After everything we've been through with him, there would be no escalation from now. He has to, to take some level of de-escalation. But if you do you really think he would make that a habit? Absolutely not. 
Absolutely not. If he beats this cowboy no fight, way. what would oh, be the biggest he skyrockets right back? You know. Yeah. What's the biggest escalation from this cowboy fight? Is it waiting ten months for a Habib rematch that no one actually no. really wants, or is it t- fighting the new biggest star in the game in a fight that would completely take over <laughs> the entire summer? And because that's what this was it, would do, right? McGregor Masvidal would be the biggest talking point for two to three months straight in the entire landscape. And I think that that's the you know that's the proper way for Connor to go because basically, like you just mentioned, there it's it's almost borderline tone deaf to say well he deserve he should get Nurmagomedov again. There's nobody really who wants that who understands the way the first fight went. There's no there's nothing that would suggest that that getting through Cowboy Cerrone should lead to Nurmagomedov. So. What would be the next best thing? That would be the fight, right? Because it's going to be huge. I agree with you that it probably would. I think it would probably nestle into the second most viewed you know, or most bought pay-per-view you know, in company yeah. history because I think that would be a big deal. That that speaks also volumes to how, how uh, Masvidal was able to project himself in 2019 into the spot. But it would also be the pro- uh, a perfect opportunity if Conor really, really wanted to earn a look at Nwanga Madoff. You know what I mean? That's I think he would point. have to go through somebody like that. That's the other point, which would be if Conor McGregor does that and he takes that Masvidal fight, ends up selling more than any pay-per-view except for the Conor Habib fight, uh, outsells the Diaz series, everything, and he wins, which I don't feel like he would win, but if he won, then what do you have? You have, in all caps, Conor McGregor is back. Right. Beat Jorge Masvidal. Then no one would be able to say that the Khabib fight doesn't make sense and then that Habib rematch becomes the biggest thing we've ever seen. That's the roadmap. That is That's the, that is the roadmap. Yeah, you're right. And I, the, I mean, right now as we speak about it, I have absolutely no interest in watching Nurmagomedov Madoff against McGregor. And I know a lot of people have echoed the same thing. I mean, it just makes no sense. But I think if he's able to do that through those two guys, I think I'd be sold enough. Especially if he made it. You know, he just looked like himself. He looked refocused. You know, maybe maybe you would have like you know he's very good at steering the narrative, right? So I think he would, if he does what he does normally, you could see him building that up even through these fights, even in in, in route, right? Like he could build up that fight at the end and uh, it would be a big deal. So yes, he has that route back. But I got to say that right now, when you mentioned the Masvidal-McGregor one, that seems to me like the biggest fight possible, um, you know, in terms of if McGregor is able to get through Cerrone and kind of use the mic the way we know he can. And there are other factors, obviously. He's got yeah. his legal issues he's dealing with. We don't know how cer- certain things like that are going to play out. But if everything goes his way and basically he's able to fight without any problems, to me that's a huge, huge fight for the summer, man. Well, that all leads into the second part of this prediction. Oh, that's right. This is a two-parter. That, that was all build-up. McGregor Masvidal will become the second biggest MMA pay-per-view ever. Conor McGregor will be retired by the end of 2020. Wow, look at that. That's the prediction, because here's how I see this going. I think he beats Cowboy, although that's still a big question mark, right? We don't really know where Connor is at this point in his career. It seems as though he's re-energized to some degree. We'll see. Yeah. Beats Cowboy, loses to Masvidal, and then fights uh, a Justin Gaethje, or more likely, I think, a Nate Diaz at the end of the year, and retires. That's, to me, how this feels like it's going to go. This feels like a last gasp attempt to salvage a legacy, because he does not need this. 
And he, we, there's no, like, I'm not breaking news by saying this. He does not need this. He will never have any need for money again. This is all vanity at this point. This is all passion. This is all something trying to reclaim something that he feels like he lost. And if it doesn't work and this year goes poorly, he's not going to dig in his heels and do this again. I feel like he will just walk away at that point and be maybe not happy with what he did, but at least comfortable enough with the idea to division champion, et cetera. I could definitely see it, man. <laughs> it's funny with the landscape, you know, 12 months, and you think of what can happen within that time. Sometimes in the fight game, 12 months goes by and nothing happens with certain fighters. But I feel like where McGregor is at and the kind of danger zone he would have to go through to um, – and, and the paydays and everything else, you know what I'm saying? Like I, I could totally see a scenario where he's done at the end. Yeah. I just He just does not feel like the guy who would drag this out and lose – three or four in a row and just really go through that personally. He doesn't need it. There's the only no, way he no does is if he, and, and, and as far as I know, the guy is still is pulling in money. I, I think that one of the big concerns with him originally when he was coming into his fortune through the fight game was that he would blow through it, right? Like yeah, that he would just not, he would be that guy that in a couple of years he, he's broke, but he has so far, you know, he, he's launched this, uh, this proper 12 whiskey brand and he's got other stuff going on. Uh, like, you know, clothing and things like that. I feel like he's he's doing some things to kind of bolster and supplement his his income, basically. I don't really feel like he's going to go broke, but I would say that those are always the things you're, you're never sure of. It's not just the glory. It's like the, the way of life you get used to. And a guy like that who's just from the get-go just been spending and spending and spending, you know, the only way I see him coming back beyond, like if, if it went down the way you're talking about, would be if he felt like he needed money. Like he felt like he wasn't able to live the lifestyle he's used to at this point. Yeah. And I just don't see us reaching that point with him. Yeah. So that is my second bold prediction for 2020. Mr. Mendenhall, what about you? All right. Well, mine is, again, it's, I feel like it's a little anticlimactic compared to that, but uh, <laughs> he's been flirting with this idea. This, this was a weird one for me because I, I thought it and I was like, I, I was like, should I talk about this? Is it too sad of a prediction? But I, I really believe we will see Nick Diaz in the cage. In 2020, oh. and not only that, Sean, but Ooh. I'm gonna I'm gonna go this extra length, and this is where I guess it's bold. I think he wins. I All think right. he wins a fight in the UFC in 2020. You have my attention, sir. <laughs> Explain. So, you know me, man. I'm always it's not it's not always as black and white as just throwing some stats and things like that. There's something about him that thrives on defiance, and I I almost feel like he he could motivate himself through that through basically the aftermath of his uh, his very bizarre interview with Ariel Hawani, right? Like where he seemed like he'd been drinking and, uh, you know, it seems just so digressive. Like he was not making any points, just kind of meandering off. I feel like, uh, I feel like that might've bothered him. I know that the the Diaz brothers are very, very self-conscious this way in the end, right? Like they, they reflect on what people are saying. They hear it. I just think that he's going to motivate. He'll use this as motivation and come back after how many, whatever years, what has it been? Uh, five years. It'll something be like, like that, yeah, yeah, five years or something like that. I think he's going to come back. He'll get the type of opponent. You know, I don't think they're going to give him a wrestler or something. I think they're going to give him the type of opponent where to be an exciting fight because it's Nick Diaz. And I think he'll win, man. Like, I just have this feeling like he'll do it just because that's – it just seems like it's kind of like a, a destiny thing to happen or something for him. Um, wow. So, 
There's no real foundation for what I'm saying. I think he will come back. I think a lot of people can make that <laughs> prediction because he's, he's basically uh, said that he wants to do that. But the fact that I think he'll show up and look good is the act of defiance that I, I feel like kind of has defined the Diaz brothers in general. You know what I mean? They do things yeah. that just kind of shake things up, and it's a little bit unexpected. I could see Nick doing that. Would it be the Masvidal fight, or would it be something else, do you think? I don't think it would be the Masvidal fight, man. I just think that right now those guys are on different vibes. You know, Like you mentioned, uh, I'm not even sure. I think that would be a, a disservice for, for the UFC to book Nick Diaz into that fight at this point. <laughs> it would be a big fight in terms of, I think that you would get like a bigger interest than if it, it would then with the bubble or whatever you would have a lot of people paying attention to it. But I think anybody who pays attention would be like, "Wow, that's 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 pretty brutal for Nick Diaz to come back and have to fight this guy right now." Um, I think it'd be a lesser name, but it'd be somebody that'll basically be, you know, it'd be somebody that basically you you'll know you you have a good fight. Like it's sure. a good fight, a good name, but it would be somebody that was more evenly matched than that. I think. I don't know how I feel about this prediction. Yeah. I almost don't want to see it after the whole, <laughs> after everything that we saw with him in the Ariel Helwani interview. But he is still Nick Diaz, right? He's still fascinating, still endlessly compelling character. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this, Chuck. You've left me feeling strange. <laughs> I, if you guys don't mind me jumping in, sure, I think, of course, Chris, I was wondering where you were. Yeah, I'm just enjoying the the show so far. Oh. Uh, you know, to compare it to somebody, I mean, maybe it's not a fair comparison, but. With BJ Penn, with all his problems, people are like, you know, all he needs is just a fight, you know, so that we could focus and, and yeah. not get into these problems. I think that I think you you mentioned that point. I think that might be true about Nick Diaz. You know, I think yeah. if you do give him something to focus on, that that defiance, that uh, you know, pride and kind of de- defending himself against everyone, you know, this me against the world kind of mentality. I think that actually is true with Nick Diaz. Yeah. Um, and so if you did set him up in the right scenario something that he wanted to do a fight that he could really sink his teeth into i think he would get get you know the right training because he's always in shape you know that yeah um i, I think he probably would train it and be ready to go and, and potentially win a fight how about that sean did that sell you i, I just don't know man i don't know if i feel comfortable <laughs> about it uh that was just such a i don't know that whole well, interview is just very so, off-putting, I guess. So these are these are just bold predictions. I agree with you. If we're doing like <laughs> a bold uncomfortableness of feeling, I would say like, yes, I'm with you on that. I, I, I certainly don't feel overly comfortable with the idea of him fighting anymore, but um, I just think he will, man. I think that all the Nate Diaz hoopla and everything that Nate has been able to kind of actually dictate in the last year, like he's uh, he's brought the fight game to him. He now has people marching to his you know, uh, his beat and everything else. I think Nick sees that, and he's, he's starting to feel a little bit forgotten, you know? I can so I, I just feel like he's got that fight, one fight like that left in him that we'll see in 2020. Well, I'll tell you what, with, between GSP and Nick Diaz and all this other stuff going on, if, th- if any of this happens, this is going to be a, a very ridiculous and interesting year. It would year. be, yeah. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Uh, all right, my last prediction for 2020, my last bold prediction of 2020 Something funny happened with this one, Chuck. We we came up with our list uh, separate from each other, and we didn't we didn't want to spoil it for each other until we yeah. got on the show. But we just cross checked before we started and said, you know, do you have anything on this topic or this topic? And this is not the one that I expected us to have crossover on, but this is the only one we had crossover on. I really did not expect that, and I think that's interesting in in its yeah. own way. My third bold prediction for 2020: John Jones will finally move to heavyweight. And then he will lose. Yeah. I feel like this is happening. 
I know John, and now I know you have a similar John Jones one. I don't think it's the exact same one, but it's similar in nature. So I'll let you go too, okay. and then let's talk about this. Why Why is this something that we mutually came up with? So my my bold prediction and the way I had it basically thought out was that he would simply lose in 2020. Because that's, you know, that's bold enough, right? Because the guy just doesn't lose. I feel like we've been trending this way, though, right? Like you had, uh, you had, you had Tiago Santos, who I think a lot of people thought won the fight with John Jones. You had guys like Anthony Smith who had his moments. It wasn't really close, but uh, he hung around to, to hear the scorecards. I feel like there's something in Jones in the same way that we've talked about some of these other fighters that could be fading, you know, like uh, some kind it, of maybe hunger. That was what I was going to say. Is it yeah. fading? It's not fading in like his skills deteriorating. It feels no, I don't like think so. You tell like, me if he this trusts is what his skill so much, though. He's so he's so confident in his superiority when he gets in there, and that's a great thing to be as a champion. It, it has just feels to like align. His motivation, his motivation yeah, it has to align with things there. like motivation, right, and hunger and things. I just I feel like that's where I sense he's lagging, and he's now fighting. He's getting ready to fight. I, I, this Dominic Reyes fight is no slam dunk, man. I mean, to me, it's a, it's a little bit closer than me. If, if of course, if John Jones shows up in his his best form. And he's motivated and all of that stuff. I, he shouldn't. He shouldn't lose. But I'm not sure he has. He's not calibrated exactly like that anymore. Um, so I just. I feel like he's going to lose in 2020. Something's going to happen. He's going to lose, and that it'll be the moment when he has to kind of get hungry again, right? Like he'll have to have his moment where he has to pick himself up and and respond. To me, that's the roadmap for why he ends up at heavyweight. Because I know John has he's promised that this is year this is the year he's moving to heavyweight. He's talked about this for a long time now, though. So taking him for his word there, it's pretty silly. But yeah. I actually this does feel like the recipe is coming together because it really does feel like he's over it. It feels like he the fights, the these Tiago Santos, Anthony Smith, Dominic Reyes fights are more of a chore to him than anything <laughs> else at this point. Like that he takes umbrage with the idea that he even has to do this because he's been doing it for so long. Walk, he's walking around heavier than he's ever been before. He he said he's experimenting with being around 230, 240 pounds and then he feels amazing. I feel like, and we have already talked about it for about 35 minutes now, he will be seeing all of the big events that will be happening this year. The Khabib's Tonys, the, the McGregor fights, the Masvidal fights. He will want to be part of something like that. Because the Dominic Reyes fight is not like that, and neither would a Jan Blackowitz fight or (laughs) whoever else is up on the radar. I think also there's an element here where he's still a human being. I think for him to see see what Daniel Cormier was able to do at heavyweight, that has to embolden him in his thoughts about his chances to some degree. Because look at it from his perspective. Here's a guy I've beaten twice. I knocked him out the second time. Even if you don't want to count it, it happened. And he's not only successful at heavyweight, but he's been a UFC champion. He was well on his way to winning that Miojic rematch before he just suffered a tactical failing. And where's John Jones the best at? He's best tactically. He's best with his fight IQ. If I'm John, I'm seeing that, what DC did. And that is cementing in my head that, of course, I can do this. It just feels like everything's coming together for this to happen. Yeah. I agree with you, man. I agree with you 100%, and I think John is a, is a tough study, though, because some of the things that seem obvious in terms of envy, for instance, like maybe guys getting big paydays or big fights, he's particularly immune to, and I'm not sure why. I think he's made a lot of money, obviously, like in his career, and maybe that, you know, he's he's 
happy or whatever, content maybe in what he's made, but he's also lost millions, you know, from the times he was yeah. suspended and everything else. I feel like some of that stuff doesn't register with him the way you might think, but um, I do believe in this new era, you know, of a lot of these guys just stealing the thunder. I feel like that's a lot of it, right? Like these GOAT conversations, these guys, especially like say GSP does come back and, you know, puts another notch onto his belt or whatever it is. These guys keep entering the GOAT conversation that he thinks he's wrapped up. I think he's going to have to match something at some point. And what would be the next logical thing for him to do? It'd be for him to go to heavyweight and basically continue a reign. Um, If he does that, dude, I feel like he's... Who can ever say that he's not? I know that you could always place the asterisk on the cheating and all that stuff. Oh, um, I mean, he becomes unassailable. But he he actually goes to heavyweight and dominates, like, that's... You can call him a cheater as much as you want. That is... As unassailable as a goat case can get at that I point. I agree with you, man. So I think in 2020, I think that that's basically one. Like I said, man, the Reyes fight will be interesting because of the things in play that I mentioned. Does he still want it? Does he still have it? Is it is he overboard? Like you mentioned, it, I feel like he does treat it like a chore, a perfunctory thing he's supposed to get through. And that's a dangerous mindset, man. When you have these guys, like Very we talked dangerous. about earlier, who are hungry and they want to prove that you're vincible. They want to do these things. Tough. I, I'm I'm saying that that's not a slam dunk that fight even, but after that, I think that I'm with you. I think his next fight will not probably it won't be somebody that we're looking at probably in the division. I think we've seen enough of the meritocracy for him for a bit. What you want to see is him go up against a guy who casts some sh- some doubt, and I think that's at heavyweight. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm with you on that, man. That that could be the moment that he gets humbled. That level of boredom, that level of bo- boredom is always what ends these sort of reigns, right? It's Anderson Silva getting to the point where he's just messing around so much that Chris Weidman knocks him out while he's clowning. It's that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that John, John's a very different type of person. He's not going to be the guy in there doing all sorts of crazy mess arounds, but it's still, I mean, how do you motivate yourself when you've done this exact same thing so many different times? I think John's going to handle Dominic Reyes. I think it's going to be pretty, pretty decisive. But after that, if you're John Jones and you're looking at this slate of summer fights that's Khabib, Tony, and you know Conor McGregor, whoever, and all these big fights, and you're faced with, hey, here's your next opponent. It's either Jan Blackowitz or Corey Anderson. <laughs> I feel like he's going to just, at that point, be like, all right, let's do something big. Let's do something big. Yeah. I, I, he has not had that big, big fight other than the DC fights his entire career. He has not been able to find somebody who was able to raise it to that level. This would be it. And that's where it goes back to yeah. where I think he will lose because I think if he does that, either Stipe Miocic or Francis Ngannou would beat him. Well, I'm glad that we agree on something, Sean. <laughs> that's a good start to the year, right? Like that we can agree on something and, and it's bold. I like that. What do you think about that, Chris? What do you think about this John Jones thing? Yeah, that so we talked about this obviously before we recorded and I, I was trying to think of a few predictions and you guys actually did hit on a couple that I was – uh, thinking about myself, and I, I think that does make sense. I do think John Jones is going to go up to heavyweight in 2020. There, it just makes sense for the matchups. I don't know about him losing. I think the the biggest threat to him is Stipe, um, because Stipe can handle the wrestling. Stipe is a great boxer. I think you know he's been in the wars before, and I think that that's probably his biggest threat. I don't know about Ngannou. I think John could still beat Francis Ngannou because of the wrestling pedigree. Um, but obviously the power coming back at him could be a problem. But um, yeah, no, I agree. I think John Jones going to heavyweight in 2020 is... What about Lesnar? 
<laughs> I mean, that's the crazy thing, right? I was actually going to jump in and say he's been looking for that Brock Lesnar fight for years. That's the one I he know. wanted. He he came up with that, and then DC stole it. You know, it's like, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think John Jones at heavyweight is probably the most realistic uh, prediction of of all of them that have been made. You know, I think yeah. I think that's probably going to happen. So also. That's Chris's way of saying that everything else we said is far-fetched and probably <laughs> You guys are just dreamers. You have no yeah. idea what's going to happen. Something else to throw out there, too. Who else is at heavyweight now? Anthony Rumble Johnson. And those two men have oh, wanted to yeah. fight each other for a long, long That's time. That's a great point. So just throwing that out there. Yeah. Uh, that has been our bold predictions for 2020. If any of these come true, it should be a very, very entertaining and exciting year. We're yeah, going to take if, a quick If any of them come true, mark it down. Have us on record. The ones that don't, just get rid of it. And we've never said. Oh, yeah. That never happened. We didn't say any of those. <laughs> Only the ones that are right. That's, that's how this works. That's right. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back on the other side. All right, Chuck, and we are back. And over the past weekend here on The Athletic, we did a little two-part feature series. This has sort of become an annual thing now for you and I. I actually really enjoyed doing this with you. Yeah. Um, day one, we did our contender draft, which is what we did in 2019. You destroyed me in the 2019 contender draft, which our editor, Dan Stupp, made sure to blast <laughs> everywhere as he promoted this all over Twitter. I very much appreciated yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then we, on, on Sunday, we did our which champions have the hardest road ahead, a.k.a. the strength of schedule, that sort of thing. Let's recap really quickly for those who didn't read it, where we landed on this. And then I want to talk about this a little bit. So for our contender draft, which is essentially a snake draft where we draft three people each of non-champions who we believe will be UFC champions by the end of the year. You had, Correct. with your number one pick, Zabit Magomed Sharipov, and then you also uh, landed Peter Yan and Ioana Janjacek. I took Francis Ngannou, Leon Edwards, and Tony Ferguson, of course, my man. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then for the champions in danger... Basically, the strongest schedule that they will have to face throughout the year. You said Kamaru Usman, Alexander Volkanovsky, and Stipe Miocic. I said Henry Cejudo, Wiley Zhang, and Israel Adesanya. Mm-hmm. This was a fascinating exercise to do. And, and, and so a lot of themes kept coming up while we did this. Um, as I said earlier in the show, just how hard some of the strength of schedules are looking for so many of these champs. But also just how many options we had. Because for each piece, there were really too many viable options to pick from, which was a little different it felt like than when we did this last year. What did you take away from from doing this, from looking at what lies ahead in 2020 and working on this? You know, it's funny because, like we mentioned off the top, like it, you you have to kind of go through a, the reflection before you can kind of go into projection, right? Like you got to say, okay, what just happened? Who looks susceptible? Where are these people's space? You know, where are they at in the space? That type of thing. It's it's momentum, right? Like a lot of it, like especially when we're talking about uh, contenders, guys, you know, p- fighters that are going to break through and 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 realize gold this year. These are these are fun, right? Like, and, and you mentioned that I I really uh, laid it on you last year, which I did. It was it wasn't very close, but <laughs> oh like the, <laughs> I had you know it was funny. I feel like I was producer at, Chris after the Irene Aldana incident. <laughs> oh my god! Just to exactly. Talk about you got you got to wow. take your victories where you can get them. Rub it in. It's crazy. But. Uh, a couple of these guys, like Israel Adesanya, was kind of easy to telegraph, but you weren't sure if he was going to actually break through because, it, like we've mentioned, there's an escalation to this game, and you have to be able to rise up and meet every, you know, every challenge head on. And guys like Robert Whitaker look like at that moment unbeatable, you know. So it's like you're not sure that will come through, but when you finally see them do it, you're like, hey, I look like a genius, you know what I mean? But it was a little. It, I felt like it was a little tougher this year. Um, some of the momentums are 
they're clear, but I feel like some guys you just haven't seen enough of, you know, and there's maybe some question marks in place, especially with a guy like Zabit, who you think like, well, is he going to gas out, you know, uh, in a title fight? Is he, does he have that stamina? Can he, you know, can he last with those guys at the top of that division who can just go for days? And I feel like those are legitimate questions, but in the end you basically, you know, you come to your conclusion based on your best guess that he will. That's basically how it felt for me. There, I think I agree with you 100% in that it was difficult because right now it feels like there's a lot of up-and-comers who we just still have a lot of question marks about yeah. in general. There's which a lot is of great. People who, yeah. which, is, which is what you want, really. You want to go into these title fights not knowing what's going to happen, not really understanding even how to begin to talk about it because there are still so many question marks available. But also, too, one thing that really struck me as we were doing this, in so many different divisions, the path is so murky forward. We're really waiting. We're in a, we're in flux in a lot of these different divisions of various things could happen. Welterweight is a great example, right? It seems like UFC wants to do this Masvidal fight between Usman and Masvidal. Probably is not going to happen because other people have right. other plans. The title the title picture is same bantamweight, same thing. Henry Cejudo wants Jose Aldo. Is Peter Young going to get a shot? That sort of thing. There's so many divisions right now where there's a cluster of maybe two or three or four people who are in this conversation, and we're just not even sure right now how it's going to play out and it's right. fascinating to me uh what did, what pick did you feel the most confident about uh in so each of these are we talking about the contenders in each of them just which which oh, one okay. did you just feel the, the best about who let me think man uh probably when we were talking about the the toughest road for a champion i thought it was it was kind of easy to come up with a name like steep Miocic, right because sure you're fighting in the heavyweight division, which is the most volatile of them all. Like, you know, guys can change fortunes with one one, one big shot. It's just uh, – and and but it was more that you look at the guys coming up, and I feel like the Ngannou he'll face is a different Ngannou, you know what I mean? Um, if, Cor- if the Cormier thing happens, there's like, you know, that's, that's a trilogy fight, a rubber match. You're like, that could go either way. I mean, I just feel like each one of his is just such a minefield. Anybody he'd face – that you can you can easily see him losing, and that's crazy because he is. I think he's one of the best, if not the best, heavyweight. Right? He's right up there. He's a guy that has proven himself time and again. But it's still, it's he's equally vulnerable every time he goes out there, man. Just a, it's just the it's just the division, and it's the beasts that are coming up behind him. I agree with you on everything you just said. To me, Steve Miocic would be the one B. To me, to what my one A would be Israel Adesanya. Yeah, he has. Such an incredibly difficult road ahead in 2020. And I know right now he looks like a potential star, a potential superstar. He looks like a guy who may very well reign over this division for a long time. Yeah. But if you just even look ahead at his next eight months, not even counting if he gets a third fight in, you're looking at Yoel Romero and then Paulo Costa back to back. That's ridiculous. My God. That's outrageous, man. That is genuinely outrageous. And then... Who knows how things play out? Maybe you get a Darren Till at the end of the year. We know Izzy likes to be busy. Maybe you get a Jared Cannonier who might be yeah, the best out say, of all of these. Jared? He might be the best out of all of these 185-pound contenders. To me, Israel Adesanya's slate that he has, his strength of schedule that he has in 2020, he very well, and I try so hard to not dive into the hyperbole when we do this. If he gets out of this unscathed, whether it's yeah. 2-0 or 3-0 this year, he might already have a, be- a case for being the second best middleweight we've ever seen at that point. Just considering yeah. how hard this would be, the, how hard that road would have to be. 
Oh, man. No, you're Am right. I out of line by saying that? No, no. I mean, you're absolutely correct. He's made it look easy. Well, let's put it this way. He made the Robert Whitaker fight look easy. The, the Gaston fight was a war. But it's like he has made his escalation, his rise through the ranks and how quickly he did it. He's made that seem easier than it is. Um, now the hard part, obviously, is defending it. And he's old school. He even uses that word, you know, like he's old school and how he wants to clean a division up before he'll even entertain, like leaping up the face of a guy like John Jones, things like that. Like I could appreciate his mindset. I think he wants to beat up, you know, uh, Paulo Costa. I think he wants to take out Yo Romero. I want, he, he wants to do the thing that leaves no doubt. Um, I love that. And I love, you know what I love too, man? That division is hit or miss with contenders coming up that are guys that you see coming. But guys like Edmund Shabazian, you know, these dudes who are coming up behind him, I just feel like it's going to keep, there's always going to be a guy. It's going to be really difficult for him to clean out a division where there's guys like that coming up behind those guys. You know what I mean? So um, we haven't it, even it should be a Kelvin really Gastelum. wild year at middleweight. Haven't even mentioned Kelvin Gastelum, who had the fight of the year with him. Exactly, exactly. Just so many names. Um, quickly, which one of these picks did you feel the least confident about? And I'll go ahead and jump in first because for me it All was right. two of them. It was Henry Cejudo as the champs in danger and also Wai Li Zhang. And it was for similar reasons. There's still question marks around both of these figures for different reasons. Henry Cejudo, is bantamweight his best division? Do we know for a fact if bantamweight is the best division? No, we don't. We have no idea. He was a tremendous flyweight. Probably one of the best flyweights we've ever seen. Is he big enough for bantamweight? Is he strong enough for bantamweight? He's beaten Marlon Marias, which says a lot. But that fight was hard. He had to make brilliant mid-fight adjustments for That it. fight was going the other way until it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is is Bantamweight his best case? I have no I have no idea. But also you look at sort of the slate of contenders he's going to face. Aljamain Sterling, Peter Jan, Corey Sanhagen, that group, the young up-and-comers coming back up. Are they ready for him? Are they are they at the point in their careers where they're polished enough and ready for this opportunity? We also don't know that either. So with yeah. me, it's really hard to forecast bantamweight because you have this cluster of guys who are all very talented, including the champion. But we just don't we don't have these answers yet for him. And that's the same exact thing with Wai Li Zhang. We have yeah. seen her so few times in the UFC. We have she was three and zero when she got that title shot, and nothing about what she or those three fights would tell you that she was going to come in there and just start Jessica Andrade at all. True. Just two, there were two middling decisions, and then he, she just bowled over. A very very late prime uh, Jessica Aguilar, which True. I'm not taking anything away from that fight, but it is what it is. I don't even know. I, I said this on our piece, but it's so rare that you get to be the point of being a UFC champion while still having this many questions about you. We just don't know, know her at all. The fight game hasn't figured her out yet. She could be the best strawweight by miles in this division, or she could have a massive hole with the wrestling that Tatiana Suarez could figure out, or Joanna and Jacek could come in and totally remind us why she was the queen for so long. Feels like anything could happen at 115, and I would not be surprised by any of it. And it was, you know, you mentioned which one did you are you the least confident in? I think it's the other side of that coin, right? Because I, I have uh, I have Joanna as a emerging champion in 2020, right? Like, but so I'm looking at that and I'm like, is it, it part of it? Is you, we think she's getting the opportunity? She should get the opportunity. They, they've they've made that fight, right? Is it official now? Oh yeah. Okay, so now that the fight is official, it's like you you say that based on the fact that she's actually and we were able. By the way, if you're if you're wondering, we were uh, allowed in our exercise to have one booked 
contender, right? Like we could choose one that was already booked into a title fight. The others had to come from left field more. Yeah. <laughs> but mine was Joanna, and I think uh, part of that is just, and I don't want to use the word wishful thinking, but I think there's a part of you that still thinks that she's got it. And it's just, uh, it kind of went away for a while maybe, but I still think that it's there, like this kind of vicious, uh, crazy striker that was kind of bursting at the seams just to get in there and do violence to somebody. I, I feel like that person is still there. This fight will tell us a lot. And I think that because we don't know Wiley Jang that much, we you know, uh, we don't know if Joanna is who, you know, if she has uh, a full cap- capacity to return to that or if she can evolve just enough to basically make her a little more unsolvable. Like, those things are still in play. So that one, to me, from the other side of the coin, picking Joanna to to regain the title this year, felt like I was out on a limb a little bit. Yeah. I could see where you're coming from, but I will say it feels to me like since Joanna Jacek lost the belt, she's given a lot of, a, uh, you can call them excuses, in talking about the reasons she went through the struggles that she went through. People very much seem to be discounting those excuses, if yeah. you want to call them that, in the MMA space. But she's kind of not lying to you guys. Like she, her and her fiance did split up. That was very difficult for her to go through. For there was a lot of personal stuff that went on during that. It was very difficult for her to deal with while she was dealing with all this other stuff. And also, this is something that cannot be overlooked. She finally has control of her weight and her really her health, her overall health. She was led astray really hard. During the course of the, her the last, uh, maybe not the last fight, but the the Rosnama Yunus era fights that she went through, her body was wrecked from weight cuts and bad advice that she had followed. She has completely sort of revamped her body and become a different, almost just athlete, sort of athlete, with the help of the UFC PI, uh, as I detailed in a piece that I, I published a couple weeks ago. That's a very real thing. You, I agree with you. I feel some level of hunger from Joanna and Jacek that I haven't felt in a yeah. really long time. And some level of of vindictiveness of just, fuck all of you people. You think I'm done? Yeah. I'll show you who's not done. That sort yeah. of thing. And that's exciting. You almost forgot. Yep. Exactly. Um, last thing on this before we, we get out of here. Is there one, now that we've had a couple days of reflection and a couple days to think about what we did, is there one in there that you forgot or one in there that you would do if we did a do-over uh pick in either of those that you would make instead Ooh, um because i have one let me okay go ahead let me think about i can't believe that neither of us touched the flyweight division yeah to me the contenders (laughs) the non-contenders to actually get the belt joseph benavides true i feel like 2020 will be the year of joseph benavides it'll be the year that he has not had that he's wanted to have for since they made this division i think in 20 12 or 11 whenever it was this was supposed to be joseph benavidez's division he's finally getting this chance now i think he takes advantage of it i think he's been waiting so long for this that this means everything to him i i am stunned that neither of us picked him for the non-champs and in retrospect i would do it over i would pick him yeah you know i actually did contemplate him and i'd have to say that that was the toughest one to exclude um, and I'm not even sure how I came to it that I did, you know, in the end. But uh, I agree with you. I agree with everything you just said. I this this whole thing. And I would have to say part of what was strange about Demetrius Johnson's reign, other than him breaking all the records and everything else, was just it always felt digressive. It felt like we started off on a a, a side note, or we went down a, a, a street we weren't familiar with right away. Because I think that the whole division was created, honestly, because of Joseph Benavides, who'd lost a couple of fights to Dominic Cruz and had no way back, right? Yeah. At bantamweight. 
They create this division. They make a four-man tournament. And I think most of us, I don't know how you felt at the time, but I thought this is Benavidez's time, right? Like he's going to, this is, he's going to become the champion and he'll probably hold that for a while. It never happened. Demetrius took the, took it and ran, man. And it's like all those years went by, and I feel like Benavidez, uh, you know, lost a couple of bids against him too. I feel like it's time. Um, I'm glad it's time for him to at least get the shot and see. You know what I mean? Like uh, he's been behind the eight ball for a long time. So I really I struggled with that one. I, I did think of it. I didn't put it in there, but I agree with you. I think that that was the that was a hard one not to to bring up. I could not agree more with everything you said there. Um, and I think you wrapped it up perfectly. That This really does feel like it is shaping up to be a thrilling year that could be tremendously unpredictable. And that is the best part of this sport is that unpredictability. When you go into these nights and you feel like you know exactly what's going to happen and then the opposite happens mm-hmm. and, you're, and we're left here with the crumbs in our hand just trying to figure out how we got <laughs> to this place. I love it. I can't wait. I am so excited to see what this new year brings. Uh, And I think that wraps up today's show. This has been another episode of the Man of the Myth podcast here on The Athletic uh, and Apple Pods and everywhere else you get your pods. Thank you so much for joining us, guys. As we said, we appreciated your support all throughout 2019, and we will appreciate your continued support throughout 2020. It's looking to be a really fun year, Chuck. I'm really excited about this. Oh, yeah. 2020, it's going to be a good one, man. And if it's anything like, you know, you know this game. You You can't make these predictions, but what is the one thing that bands us all together in the sport? The idea that we can be surprised every year. So I appreciate going into a new year with you and trying to gain a foothold as to what's going to happen. We know it's an exercise of futility, but uh, we gave it our best shot, man. As always, what is the motto here on Man of the Myth? No one knows anything. No nothing. <laughs> we know nothing. And with that, that wraps up our first show of 2020. Thank you guys so much again for tuning in. We will be back on Wednesday. Uh, my name is Sean Alshadi. That man is Chuck Mendenhall for producer Chris. Hope you had a happy new year. Welcome to 2020. It's going to be a fun one. Join us again on Wednesday.